welcome to the preaching ministry of Port St. Lucie Bible Church. We are a Christian church whose goal is to faithfully preach Christ from Scripture so that we might better love and serve Him. We pray that this message from God's Word would engage your mind with the truth and inspire your heart to obey Christ. Here's today's message. Please turn your Bibles to Acts chapter 9. Something feel different, it's Labor Day, summer's over and you're just buckling into life and school started again. Feels good, feels good. In chapter 9, today's passage begins in the second half of verse 19. We'll pick up about midway in verse 19. During our last lesson, this last Sunday, Saul the Pharisee, he had just converted to Christianity after being confronted in an appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ on the road to Damascus. Then after three days, uh, our Lord sent to him Ananias. He was a disciple in Damascus who, who then laid hands upon Saul. And ultimately we saw uh, that Saul's heart is changed uh, through a filling of the Holy Spirit, a filling by the Holy Spirit. And uh, as we begin, please uh, note that Damascus, that is in, uh, in the, the region of Syria. It's about 150 miles north of Jerusalem. In that day, quite a distance north of Jerusalem. And uh, that is where this scene is taking place. Also, today's passage, verses 19 through 31, it reveals a a complete and immediate change in Saul's life. Uh, Therefore, I've titled today's message, Saul is a New Creature. Uh, Let's begin by reading from verse 19, about midway through. Now, for several days, he, referring to Saul, was with the disciples who were at Damascus, And immediately he began to proclaim Jesus in the synagogue, saying, He is the Son of God. All those hearing him continued to be amazed and were saying, Is this not he who in Jerusalem destroyed those who called on this name? And who had come here for the purpose of bringing them bound before the chief priests? But Saul kept increasing in strength and confounding the Jews who lived at Damascus by proving that this Jesus is the Christ. When many days had elapsed, the Jews plotted together to do away with him. But their plot became known to Saul. Uh, They were also watching the gates day and night so that they might put him to death. But his disciples told him, uh, took him by night and led him down through an opening in the wall, lowering him in a large basket. When Saul came to Jerusalem, he was trying to associate with the disciples, but they were all afraid of him, not believing that he was a disciple. But Barnabas took hold of him and brought him to the apostles and described to them how he had seen the Lord on the road and that he had talked to Saul and how at Damascus he had, been, he had spoken out boldly in the name of Jesus. And he was with them moving about freely in Jerusalem, speaking out boldly in the name of the Lord. And he was talking and arguing with the Hellenistic Jews, but they were attempting to put Saul to death. 
But when the brethren learned of it, uh, they brought him down to Caesarea and sent him away to Tarsus. So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria enjoyed peace, being built up and going on in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it continued to increase. So uh, Saul is entirely changed. He's become, uh, as Jesus expressed to another Pharisee named Nicodemus in John chapter 3, Saul has become uh, born again. And this text, it provides a broad summary of events that followed Saul's conversion. Uh, Our next passage then that we'll look at next time will provide us with a summary of what has been going on in Peter's life. But what we look at here today, it, it's an overview. It's a, it's a picture of the early ministry of Saul, uh, but it will help us immensely to recognize beforehand, this is a broad picture uh, in verses 19 through 30 that cover a period of Saul's life that exceeds three years. Luke doesn't attempt to supply all the minute, uh, uh, detailed minutiae of these years, but he simply wants readers to recognize how much Saul's life has changed. That it had changed abruptly once he had been filled with the Holy Spirit and having accepted Jesus Christ as his Lord. Additionally, Saul has been uniquely called by Christ to preach the gospel, and uh, because of this, we need to, to take a step back, we need to look back once more at that earlier visit from Ananias. You know, I highlighted uh, two weeks ago, actually last week, how important it was for Ananias to go to Saul as a human ambassador of Jesus Christ. That was, we spoke at that time, that was partly to preserve this standard of how God invites people, invites sinners into reconciliation with himself uh, through human agents. He uses, God uses human means, and uh, our earlier scripture reading revealed to us, it actually amplified how we too, who know Christ, are his ambassadors, 2 Corinthians 5.20. As, as though we we're making an appeal, uh, he were making an appeal through us, and here's the appeal. It goes out today. We beg you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. That's the banner that we wave as his ambassadors. We have to think, though, why has God chosen to impart eternal life in this way through through human means? There are a number of reasons. It's it's difficult to exhaust them all, really. But but one for certain is this, that that through evangelism, through sharing the gospel, we initiate these relationships, these new relationships. We, We initiate human relationships, redemptive relationships, as the God wills, and those relationships that we form here are going to perpetuate throughout all eternity. All begins with a human agent reaching out to other humans. Uh, In heaven, we are going to visit people with whom we have shared the gospel of peace. 
They are going to invite us in to their heavenly abode, and we are going to rejoice greatly at how God used people like us in order to share the gospel and invite people into reconciliation with him. So, you know, just as in the Old Testament, there are many examples, but think of Jonah, the prophet, who was sent to Nineveh uh, to to bless them, God is still using human agents today to reconcile sinners to himself. It's his divine prerogative to do it that way, his principle. It is a precedent that is established firmly in Scripture. It's not going to be bypassed. I don't want to uh, divert our attention too far away today, but in light of Saul's experience, uh, we're eventually going to have to address it. Um, I don't believe reports today citing that throngs of people are coming to faith overseas, saving faith in Jesus solely through having visions. In in fact, I I personally do not believe uh, there are any. You may disagree. I realize those claims exist, Where they originate from, nobody really knows for sure, uh, but reports of just scores or, or throngs of people coming to faith in Jesus through visions, they can usually be traced back to more charismatic sources, uh, striving just to convince everyone, uh, that God reconciles people, uh, through things they have seen. Visions, dreams, signs, miracles. Uh, there's, there's a thought pattern out there uh, that God reconciles people through things they have seen. Now, I may be a little old-fashioned here, but I've always believed that saving faith remains a conviction of things unseen. And I believe that the gospel reside, resides, the power of it resides in the gospel preached. Hebrews 11, faith is the conviction of things unseen. Without faith, it is impossible to please God. So we don't need to see anything. And the Apostle Paul, to whom Christ appeared in a vision on the road to Damascus, uh, he writes this for the benefit of all of us. I shared it last week, Romans 10, 14. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? How will they believe in him? whom they have not heard, and how will they hear without a preacher? And uh, how will they preach unless they are sent? We have to send ministers of the gospel, human agents, human means who are ambassadors for the gospel. So even Saul realized early on during his own conversion on the road to Damascus, that this scriptural standard established by Jesus, who always sends a human delegate, in, in Saul's case, it's Ananias. In fact, in the next chapter, there'll be Acts chapter 10, a Roman centurion who's named Cornelius will also receive a vision Uh, Yet Cornelius still needs to send for and wait for the Apostle Peter to arrive so that he and his household can hear the gospel preached by Peter. He still needs to wait for a human agent, though there was a vision involved. Um, Visions, even if they were to still occur today, uh, 
they never replace God's human ambassador. Never replace God's human ambassador. When I attended Dallas Seminary back uh, 2008, 2009, during one of my classes in systematic theology, uh, one of my professors there uh, I asked, you know, about these claims, especially hear about it over in, in the Middle East and Muslims and, and, other, uh, and other distant areas. I asked about these claims of people getting saved, you know, just exclusively through visions, just plain, just a vision. And uh, that professor, his name was Scott Harrell. Um, he had spent much time in, in regions of Brazil as a missionary before he became a professor. Very, very honest, a very humble Uh, a very godly man, uh, he replied that uh, Dallas Seminary at that time, and and that is an institution quite large, benefiting from uh, relationships with churches and ministries and missionaries uh, all around the world, Uh, he stated that uh, Dallas Theological Seminary was unable to validate reports, you know, of thousands of Muslims coming to faith through visions. They just wasn't able, they weren't able to validate it through their sources. Um, I've also never heard such claims made or substantiated through any of our own missionaries here, some of whom who are very remote areas of the world, working there for decades in places such as India, uh, Niger, and Brazil. And, uh, you know, we're going to have them coming up and visiting uh, soon. You could ask him next week what her experience has been. Um, Asked directly, I've spoken to many who come from remote regions of the world and people get saved the same way they do in our passage. You preach the gospel, someone has to be sent. I'll draw attention to this concern again when we were introduced to Cornelius in Acts chapter 10, but I, I want to urge us to remain very wary, very wary of any source claiming that you know scores of people in remote locations around the world are coming to faith in Jesus through visions. Then they'll use Saul and Cornelius as their scriptural examples of how that occurs. Uh, but these men did not come to faith through visions or solely through visions. Uh, rather, God sent to each one of them a human ambassador And uh, we dare not ever be deceived. This is the reason I bring this up. Uh, We dare not ever be deceived into thinking that we no longer need to train, nor to send, nor to finance preachers around the globe. Because the Holy Spirit is not building Christ's church today through alternative supernatural means. In fact, that whole idea that you don't have to send someone, that they can just have a vision somewhere in a remote area, uh, sounds more to me like misinformation from Satan. we, We could conclude, great, God's handling this on his own now through supernatural means, through visions. You know, that's great. We can relax. You know, keep more of our money for ourselves, important stuff, you know, our hobbies and things we enjoy and our pets and not prioritize sending missionary gospels, uh, preachers around the world. You could see how the mindset of how people are saved can be detrimental, if not biblical. 
God has always and continues to always use human means to fulfill, fulfill the great commission. It's, it's a permanent model established by God in scripture. We must train up and send out ministers of the gospel. Saul, who will, who will become the apostle Paul will later write, how will they preach unless they are sent? Urgent, urgent priority of the church. So Saul had a vision. Jesus sent to him Ananias. Cornelius will have a vision. Jesus sends to him Peter. Uh, Whether it was the original 12 apostles, Stephen or Philip, God has always sent a preacher. If you're seeking easy-to-follow application, biblical Christianity doesn't get any simpler than this. And Saul has become the, the, just the latest to join this increasing, expanding line of, of human agents sent out by Christ to preach the gospel. Yet even Saul is not permitted to go until Ananias comes and lays hands on him. Saul remains blind. He remains with scales on his eyes beforehand. He still does not have the Holy Spirit uh, filling him yet. Uh, And this reveals another reason that Jesus sent him Ananias. Ananias was sent both as a representative of Jesus, uh, and he was also sent as a representative of local Christians. Uh, We could uh, perhaps refer to it as the first Church of Damascus. And he was sent to lay hands on Saul. Uh, Whenever a person is called by Christ and commissioned to preach the gospel, there must accompany a laying on of hands. Folks, Saul doesn't just start doing his own thing. Nobody gets to spawn their own new branch of Christianity. Before Saul is permitted to preach, he he must first be admitted into the church. He must be baptized into the faith by Ananias. He must be filled with the Holy Spirit of God, and he must be identified as having received the Lord's calling through the laying on of hands. Yes, Jesus appeared to Saul, uh, but, but even having a vision, even having a private, personal vision is not enough to call you to preach. Your private experience does not make you a preacher. You know, if Christ has called anyone, any person, into a position to preach the gospel, the varied capacities of that, evangelism, missions work, preaching, pastoral ministry, uh, if, if Christ has called any person into a position to preach, that calling must be affirmed and validated through the laying on of hands by the local church. Therefore, Jesus not only appears to Saul, he, he also sends Ananias to lay hands on Saul. You know, Saul doesn't just start off on his own. Fact is very important. Very important. Um, I'll tell you why. 
You are going to run into people, I, I guarantee it, if you're active at all in evangelism, you are going to run into people, uh, many people, who claim Saul of Tarsus started his own sub-faction of Judaism. In, in fact, they will insist that Saul who later becomes known in Scripture as the Apostle Paul, they will insist that Saul actually corrupted Christianity. This is what some people will say. It's not, it's not a, a fringe idea. Their claim is, is that the free grace of God, that you, that you come to God just as I am, Without, without bearing anything of my own. Their claim is that the free grace of God preached by Paul, which also exempts us from ceremonial acts of the Mosaic law, certain ones such as dietary restrictions, uh, keeping the Sabbath day, uh, circumcision, good name, many others. They would say that that idea that we're exempt as Christians from those is Saul's own private distortion of Christianity. Yeah, yeah, it is a thing out there. It's becoming a very big thing that you will encounter. It's been charged that the gospel of free grace preached by Paul was his own invention, that he came up with it on his own, uh, that the other apostles, they will say Peter and James, they'll say even Jesus, they say, neither concur nor consent. And this anti-Pauline bias uh, has become very prominent among who some, not all, but some who identify as, as messianic Christians. You know, many of whom wish to return us to subjecting ourselves to select elements of the law. And it becomes proposed by them um, that true Christians... True Christians must bring ourselves into conformity with aspects of the law if we truly wish to follow Jesus. In other words, don't eat pork. Some say don't eat any meat at all. Many different variations of this, this, this out there. And folks, these people are Judaizers. That's what they are. They followed, they followed Paul everywhere where Paul preached, and they want to enslave us all over again to the law. That's, that's their goal. The movement is extremely dangerous. They, they not only reject Paul, but they also reject everything in the Bible that appears Pauline. Uh, that includes the 13 epistles written by Paul. And therefore, when you quote to them an authoritative passage such as, well, Galatians 5, verse 6, written by Paul, for in Christ, uh, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision means anything, but faith working through love, their reply is, yeah, well, that's Saul of Tarsus. You're not really following Saul of Tarsus, are you? In a demeaning tone, they will say, um, I've encountered this Numerous times, uh, ultimately, these people uh, wholesale uh, reject the New Testament as being polluted and corrupted by Paul, and they indoctrinate the weak who are willing to yield to their influence. Um, what have we discovered the Bible teaches about Saul of Tarsus? We have learned in Acts chapter 9, verse 15, 
that Christ personally called Saul, described him as, quote, a chosen instrument of mine, says Jesus, to bear my name before the Gentiles and the kings and the sons of Israel. We then see that the Holy Spirit approves. The Holy Spirit fills Saul in Acts chapter 9, verse 17. And then we also find that the local church approves. It's Ananias who is sent to lay hands on Saul and baptize him into the faith and then bring him and introduce him to the other disciples living in Damascus. Uh, Ananias embraces and identifies Saul in verse 17 as a brother. He's brother Saul. Um, For further reference, um, the apostle Peter also describes Paul, 2 Peter 3.15, as our brother. And Peter, in that same text, classifies Paul's writings as Scripture. Again, 2 Peter 3.15. So the Bible does assure us that Saul is, in Acts 9, chosen by Christ, ordained to preach the gospel through the laying on of hands, and is embraced in the local church in Damascus. And then at the end of verse 19, Paul begins his or Saul, excuse me, begins his ministry by spending several days uh, with the disciples who were there. So he enters into fellowship in, in with the first church of Damascus. Paul is part of the church and sent out by the church. He didn't start doing his own thing. We're going to treat the essential practice of laying on of hands separately once we reach Acts chapter 13. Uh, there, the first church of Antioch, if I may call it that, lays hands on both Saul and Barnabas, whom the Spirit has set apart into a missionary capacity to send them out as missionaries. And uh, that laying on of hands by a local presbytery or a council of elders, it may be referred to, uh, precedes a special assignment in the Lord. Uh, We saw it first back in Acts chapter 6, when the church in Jerusalem identified seven men who were commissioned to feed the widows. Uh, We see the laying on of hands again here with Saul, who is called to preach the gospel, and we'll see it increasingly as the church expands and moves forward, this, this act of commissioning. Sometimes it's referred to as ordination. Um, It is a scriptural practice whenever anyone receives a special calling of God. In in any special work. Uh, The laying on of hands by the local church. Not necessarily this local church, but a godly Bible-believing local church somewhere is a declaration of endorsement of that individual, of that couple, of that group who has been called by God into ministry. We've done it here. Um, Everyone who is called by God into full-time gospel ministry set apart by the Spirit of God must be identified and endorsed by their own local church as spiritually gifted to fulfill that calling. A person cannot ordain himself, cannot endorse himself, Uh, Anyone claiming they have been called by God to preach or to do missionary work will first need to receive a stamp of approval from their home church 
who will heartily agree that they are appropriately gifted by the Holy Spirit and are called by God. Since the uh, church today is, is warned, actually, not to rely upon uh, private visions, personal experiences, Colossians 2 verse 18 for one example, since the church today is warned not to rely upon private experiences, Scripture cautions that the laying on of hands must only occur following examination over a length of time. Paul writes, this is 2 Timothy 5 verse 22, do not lay hands upon anyone too hastily and thereby share responsibility for their future sins. Well, you ought to know them. So so we wait to lay on hands uh, until we are confident about their habits about their personalities, about their dispositions, their, their character traits, before we give them any endorsement to enter Christian ministry. Again, I'll have more to include about this once we reach Acts chapter 13. We'll, we'll specifically treat this, uh, this topic itself. In our text, however, Saul has been called directly by Christ. Christ has, has told him, step on the fast track. This is first because Saul received from Jesus a unique assignment as an apostle. So Saul had to visually see the risen Christ. This had to occur for Saul. Second, his experience wasn't private, but could be attested to by several men traveling with Saul. You can reference back to verse 11 on that. And third, Ananias also received a vision from Christ to go lay hands on Saul, supplying added validation to what was happening in Damascus. So you see, whether it involves a pastor, a missionary, some role of evangelist, or even in this unique case, an apostle, no calling into our Lord's service is ever private. This calling wasn't based on Saul's own private experience. Quite to the contrary, numerous others were involved by Christ, enabling Saul then to immediately receive a local endorsement in Damascus by the church. It was evident to many. Still, the greatest presence and the greatest proof of Saul's call to preach is in the pudding of the passage. Was Saul truly called? You ask about a person, were they truly called by God? Uh, the evidence revealed in verse 1 states, quote, Saul immediately began proclaiming Jesus as the Son of God to the Jews in the synagogues. He followed through after he received his endorsements. Um, since the gospel is not yet preached to the Gentiles, and reach that for another chapter or so, Saul begins with those he knows, the Jews in the synagogues, and they know him. And the Jews are bewildered by what they see. The term in verse 21, uh, usually translated, or it is in my Bible anyhow, uh, continually amazed, 
literally means they were beside themselves. It's like they're having an out-of-body experience. The Jews were struck out of their minds at what they saw, and they were asking, is this not he who in Jerusalem destroyed those who called on this name? And who had come here for the purpose of bringing them bound before the chief priests? But Saul, listen to this, Saul kept increasing in strength and confounding the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus is the Christ. So we have Saul, who is a Pharisee. He's an expert in the Mosaic law, applying all of his intellectual might, all of of what he has learned through the years, and all of his rhetorical brilliance that he had, and and he combines that, I believe. I I, I believe he combines all of that with the advanced Christian apologetics that he has learned and heard from those whom he has persecuted. Just think of what Stephen said in Saul's presence. Saul's already got all the advanced apologetics of the church. And the Jews in Damascus are left perplexed. They're just confused at how all this uh, came together. The statement given in verse 22, which states, Saul kept on increasing in strength. Notice there's a period of time there. He kept on increasing in strength. It's written, uh, Greek scholars tell us, in the imperfect tense, which those language scholars say, uh, it, it suggests Saul's preaching both in and around Damascus continued on for quite a period of time. It's a lengthy period of time, they say. Uh, and in Damascus, he, he kept in strength, increasing in strength. That means Saul didn't, just didn't hang out for a few days. In fact, he, he became a painful sore to the Jews who were living in Damascus. Verse 23 re, will reveal for a great many days. Great many days. Let's not forget, Saul the Pharisee had arrived in Damascus bearing the highest Jewish credentials, the highest religious credentials, And no one else was ever dispatched from Jerusalem to try to put a cap on it. Jerusalem's 150 miles south. Saul's up there with all of his credentials as a Pharisee, known by all as as powerful in the Word of God. And uh, no one's dispatched to intervene and stop him in Damascus. And and we learn in Galatians chapter 1, which I read to you last Sunday, that this continued on for a period of three years. Paul reveals in Galatians 1 verse 17 that after he started preaching in Damascus, he then spent some time in the adjacent region of Arabia. It's right next door to Damascus and Syria. And then Saul says that he returned again to Damascus, and I imagine to the chagrin of the Jews. So he's in Damascus, he keeps on increasing, spreads out to Arabia, which is off to the east of Damascus, then comes back to Damascus, he 
Saul tells us he came back again. So verses 20 through 22 cover a long period of time. It's approximately three years, according to Paul. And uh, this is the reason why verse 23 states that it was after many days elapsed, meaning a considerable length of time. The Jews who just grown sick and tired of listening to Saul, they had plotted to do away with him. In fact, uh, the Jews had been forced to endure Saul for so long, they finally appealed to the ethnarch, that is the secular ruler of Damascus, under the authority of the king of Arabia, a man named Aretas. They appealed to seize Paul. You know, folks, this isn't Jerusalem. This is Damascus. It's an Arab city. The Jews are the minority in Damascus. They don't control the courts. They don't, they don't control the city. They were a minority in Damascus who was in a pickle. Yeah, this guy Saul that won't leave him alone, them alone. They couldn't even get rid of their own Pharisee. They possessed no legal recourse to do so. So they're forced to petition and enlist civil authorities to help get rid of this guy. They, they had to convince a Syrian governor, an ethnarch, that Saul had become such a nuisance in synagogues that he must be taken out. You know, that doesn't happen in a few days. You know, the secular authorities don't, they don't perk up on anything until they really think there's a problem in the synagogues. It took a good many days. Many days had elapsed, I propose, three years. So, so if that's correct, after a period of about three years had, had elapsed, Paul... In 2 Corinthians 11, verse 32 reveals, quote, In Damascus, the ethnarch under Aretas, the king, was guarding the city of the Damascans in order to seize me, and I was let down in a basket through a window and a wall, and so escaped his hands. Who is he running from? The Jews? Yes. The king and the governor? Yes. He's, he's running from everybody. And the scene that we see then in our passage of being lowered down in a basket out of a wall, that comes at the end. It's towards the end of these three years, not just after the first five or six days. Verses 22, uh, excuse me, 23 to 25 then occur at the end of this time uh, when we are told many days had elapsed. The Jews plotted together to do away with him. He conspired with the Syrian ethnarch. Uh, but their plot became known to Saul, and they were also watching the gates day and night so that they might put him to death. But his disciples took him, took Saul, uh, by night and let him down through an opening in the wall, lowering him in a large basket. So Saul was running from everybody by this time. He'd been in Damascus, uh, the adjoining region of Arabia, long enough where his influence, we read, kept on increasing continued to increase enough where the governor joined hands with the Jews to take him out um, and to where Christians in Damascus who had who'd grown to be quite fond of Saul were willing to even risk their lives to save him. 
is after this, these three years in Galatians 1 verse 17, where Saul finally returned to Jerusalem for the very first time. I'm going to encourage you to uh, read verses 26 to 30. You know, you're smart people. You can figure this out. Uh, Ultimately, the small number of Christians who now remained in Jerusalem, everyone else fled. Do you remember from our earlier studies? Uh, Those small number of Christians who now remained in Jerusalem for good reason remained very wary of Saul, suspicious of him until a man named Barnabas gets involved. Uh, Saul will eventually preach boldly in Jerusalem as well, uh, even returning to visit those same Hellenistic Jews, verse 29, who had stoned Stephen back in Acts chapter 7. And now those same Hellenistic Jews are attempting to kill Saul as well. Doesn't end smoothly. Saul's return to Jerusalem doesn't at first end very smoothly. Uh, so the brethren there sneak Saul out of Jerusalem. They send him off to Tarsus. We learn in Galatians chapter 2, verse 1, uh, Saul does not revisit Jerusalem again for another 14 years. So the track wasn't so fast after all. Spent three years battling in Damascus. Another 14 years in Tarsus before he can go back to Jerusalem again. Um, Saul had quite a beginning of his ministry. So what do we have? Ultimately, what do we have with Saul? Well, I can tell you what we have. We have a man with a changed life. It's a life that is on display for all the world around him to see. Those who knew Saul and knew his reputation before Christ, they no longer even recognized him. Later, this this same man in our story, Saul, will write, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things passed away. Behold, all things are new. Nobody could testify more to that than Saul the Pharisee. It wasn't as if Saul was a grossly immoral man. We seem to think of sinners in the way that you know, the ancient Jews did. They're people who are sexually immoral and grossly immoral in every way. Um, but it wasn't as if Saul was that way. In fact, he'd been a rather devoutly religious Jew but one who stood opposed to Jesus Christ and the truth of the gospel. But those who knew him, or at least who knew of him, they said, is this not he who in Jerusalem destroyed those who called on this name? Yeah, Is this not the same man who used to gather together with us and mock Christianity? Is it not he who used to employ the name of Jesus Christ as a slur? As a blasphemer? What's changed with Saul? Everything has changed with Saul. And the behavior of this Saul now has everyone bewildered 
at what has happened to him. Folks, let me ask you this. Are your old friends confused? Are they shocked that you no longer run with them in the same excess of dissipation that you once did? Can they not understand why why now you go to bed early on Saturday night so that you can gather together with those Christians on Sunday morning and sing songs about just as I am? Is your family surprised that your language has changed? Your habits have changed. Where you spend your time and where you spend your money has all changed. Have members of your family, perhaps even your parents or your siblings or your own children, they've been struck out of their senses as to how your attitude is now pure, that it is now holy, all your priorities are new. That's a life that's on display. That's a life filled by the Holy Spirit of God. Anyone who is in Christ is a new creature. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things are new. Has it occurred to you that Christ through His Spirit has changed you? All for the new? Let's pray. Father, thank You for the goodness that we share that we can call you just that, Abba, Father, and Christ, our brother and our Savior, and one another, our brothers and our sisters and our friends. And as this has all been accomplished through the blood of your Son, Father, uh, we rejoice. We rejoice and we herald to the world. Uh, We beg on the behalf of Christ Jesus, be reconciled through him. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.